Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacleriatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Ike Fryman, a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking to Ike about his new book, One Belt, One Road, Chinese Power Meets the World. Ike, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Ike, can you start by telling our listeners who you are and how you came to write this book? Sure. Thanks, John. So I'm a PhD student at Oxford, but I had a long and winding journey to One Belt, One Road. Uh, It began in 2015 when I was working at Tsinghua University, uh, one of the big universities in Beijing, as a research assistant to a professor on Chinese soft power in Europe. And I was surprised during my time there that One Belt, One Road seemed to be on the tip of everyone's lips and on the front page of Chinese leading party media almost every day. And it seemed to me sort of incongruous that this thing, which was being billed in China as both Xi Jinping's pet project and the Chinese national project of the century uh, to restore some sort of historic greatness, was getting hardly any coverage at all in the Western media. So I thought it would be interesting to start digging into where exactly this idea comes from inside China and how exactly there might be misalignments between how the Chinese understand it and how the foreigners, and particularly the United States government, understands it. So over the last five years, I think it's fair to say that One Belt, One Road has received a huge amount of publicity in the Western press. Um, Some of it has been quite good, but I think it's also fair to say the vast majority of it has been not very good based on secondary sources and sort of a a circular process of citing one another rather than on the ground research. So I set out to write this book uh, in 2017 when I was at Harvard on a grant from the Asia Center to look really deeply at one or two case studies of big Chinese infrastructure projects that went not according to plan. And then trying to see how we could match up the very local, granular, ground-level story of what this initiative is with the big-picture, conceptual Chinese idea of what One Belt, One Road is. And that's what this book is. It's an attempt to link the ground level to the conceptual level and hopefully give some clarity to the American analysis of the foreign policy challenge and begin to think through what our options may be. And what is the thesis of your book? So the One Belt, One Road has been discussed ad nauseum, but I, I think the consensus is it is basically an infrastructure project. It is a giant scheme for Chinese state-owned enterprises to offload their excess capacity by building big things overseas. And at the same time, it is a process whereby Chinese banks state banks, which are sitting on huge reserves of capital 
because the Chinese people save a lot, and to deploy that capital abroad to seek higher returns. And so essentially, it's been conceptualized as a form of a debt trap. A Chinese bank will go to a recipient country like Sri Lanka or Malaysia or Greece, and they'll say, here's a loan. And if you take out this loan and contract with a Chinese bridge builder or port builder or road builder, uh, we can give you the financing to build some infrastructure that you need on pretty favorable terms. And we can bring to bear our own expertise on how to do that in a cost-effective way by importing Chinese equipment, Chinese laborers, Chinese materials. And so essentially what China's doing is they're reconnecting Asia or reconnecting the world via all of this heavy infrastructure. And in the process, because many of these projects are poorly thought out, countries fall into debt. And therefore, uh, China having coerced or manipulated countries into taking out loans too big to pay off has become a kind of loan shark and is building a global empire of debt surreptitiously. And the Trump administration, particularly since 2018, has been going around the world trying to spread this narrative. Mike Pence calls China a predatory lender. Just last month, Mike Pompeo is in Sri Lanka trying to spread this narrative. And the argument of the book is that that diagnosis is wrong. One Belt, One Road is not fundamentally an infrastructure project. It's really something much bigger. It is a project for imperial rejuvenation with Xi Jinping at the center. And it is spinning in a new and creative and kind of revisionist way, a, a story about what China was when its territory was at its greatest extent, when its imperial power and glory and technological prowess was unmatched anywhere in the world, which was in the, the Han dynasty, in the Tang dynasty, and in the Ming dynasty. And it says that in those imperial stories, China actually can learn everything it needs to know about what kind of great power it should be in the 21st century and how it should relate to smaller countries. And to put it pretty bluntly, that's the tributary system. It's, it involves Chinese money and technology attracting other countries so that other countries send their emissaries to kowtow to China and in return for their political uh, subservience, the Chinese give them on favorable terms, money, technology, and access to the Chinese market. And if the thesis of the book is right, then the stakes are pretty high for Washington and frankly for everyone else, since it means that whether a given project makes money or not, uh, whether even a whole slate of infrastructure projects are successful or not, there's a political story that is, goes much deeper than the economic story, because it's not just about China trying to sign up other countries for its scheme or manipulating or luring other countries into the scheme. You actually have a global process of smaller and developing countries willingly signing up for this. And I think that's a challenge that the United States hasn't really reckoned with, and the Biden administration should. Before we really dive into a lot of the arguments you just presented, I want to pause for one moment to talk about linguistics. You use One Belt, One Road instead of the title that is currently in favor in the West to describe this project, which is Belt and Road Initiative. Why? This is a good question, John, and I'm glad we started with that. So in Chinese, the name of this initiative is Itai Ilu, 
literally one belt, one road. And it's not by accident that they organize it that way. In fact, Chinese has a lot of four character slogans called Changyu or slogans or expressions, which generally speak to either a historical or linguistic or philosophical anecdote or contain some sort of inner balance, which carries with it evocations of a whole complex of ideas. So ifu ichi means one husband, one wife, literally. But as, as a four-character phrase, it means monogamy, right? Ixin yi, one heart, one soul. Together, it means wholeheartedly. It's a metaphor, with the heart and soul working as one. And so when the Chinese talk about idai ilu, what they're really talking about is not just one literal belt of infrastructure across uh, Central Asia and one literal road, I suppose, of maritime traffic going through the South China Sea and Indian Ocean. They're talking about them together as a balanced totality that describes what China's relationship to the world should look like and what the world's relationship to China should look like. And this obviously doesn't scan well. It doesn't sound very attractive in English. Obor, in fact, sounds kind of ominous. And so between 2017 and 2018, the party's Central Translation Bureau, such a thing does exist, it's linked to the Central Propaganda Bureau. They, they ordered uh, through a document circulated to the various party agencies that the name in English should be changed. It should go from One Belt, One Road, which obviously had been branded rather poorly to Western ears, to the Belt and Road Initiative, which suggests this sort of plucky, friendly uh, willingness to solve global problems in a collaborative way. But I think it's very telling that the Chinese name never changed. And I think that it is important that we recognize it is a concept that has metaphorical symbolic significance to Chinese people as it was first conceived. And that's why the United States government calls it One Belt, One Road. And that's why I call it One Belt, One Road. You reject a number of popular ideas about Obor. You reference them already, but I'll repeat a few of them. So uh, among those ideas that you kind of reject is that it represents a debt trap for recipient countries, that pushback against Chinese predatory lending is growing, and that it is a centrally directed geostrategic master plan for the unification of the Eurasian landmass inspired by the ghost of my favorite, Alfred Mackinder. So why is there so much confusion about what Obor is and isn't? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think the simple answer is that China has allowed there to be confusion because uh, China doesn't particularly care whether the foreigners understand it clearly or not. And the bigger and more sort of conceptually diffuse it is, uh, the easier it is for various actors within the Chinese system to glom onto it. So if we want to ask this question, what is one Belt, One Road, after all. And I, that is probably the way we should start. Um, there's a couple of ways you can answer that question. Um, first and most obviously, it is this large set of infrastructure projects that China has been building around the world, um, many of which are interconnected with one another, um, many of which are not interconnected with one another. Um, so not really a network, more a, a scattered, a scattering of, of dots on the map. Um, that's undeniable. That has been 
funded by hundreds of billions of dollars in lending. It's required vast quantities of materials and laborers. Uh, clearly, there is a, a physical footprint of this initiative. Um, but I think the Belt and Road has other dimensions too. It has a, <laughs> you can think about it as, as a brand, right? For Xi Jinping and the model that he has chosen uh, to describe China's overseas lending activities. Because China was building heavy infrastructure abroad, uh, funded by loans from state banks long before Xi Jinping took power. In fact, some of the most prominent Belt and Road projects or projects that have been branded as Belt and Road by foreign observers or by the Chinese uh, are actually, they predate Xi Jinping often by many years. And there was also a concept of rebuilding the new Silk Road in Chinese, Xin the Sichou Zhulu, which uh, various party apparatchiks had been talking about for almost a decade before Xi Jinping took power. So none of this is particularly conceptually new, but what Xi Jinping did is he says, one belt, one road is something that I propose, Wati Chu. And that is a, a sort of unusual uh, turn of phrase. Chinese party leaders don't tend to say, I propose. They say, our party collectively proposes. And so what I argue Xi Jinping has sort of done is he's created a campaign to create One Belt, One Road. And he's invited basically every actor and entity in the Chinese system to participate, whether it's uh, state-owned enterprises or private companies, whether it's... Uh, national level ministries or local or provincial governments. And so it, it, it behooves Xi Jinping to define it vaguely, because if, say, a kitchenware manufacturers association or a, a, a brewery wants to associate itself with Xi Jinping's pet project, wants to show its obedience to the national scheme and show that it's trying to play its part, even if what they ultimately make are tongs or beer, uh, if One Belt, One Road is defined in the most metaphorical, abstract way as cooperative relationship between China and Westerners, then they can say plausibly that we're contributing to the Belt and Road brand by building a brewery someplace overseas. So I think the Chinese have clearly allowed the slogan to be co-opted by various uh, entities within their system. They've also allowed foreign companies like Walmart or Boeing or Samsung to talk about how they're contributing to the Belt and Road, even when they're j essentially just doing business activities they would want to do anyway. And the fact that that has been a deliberate decision and the fact that China has not, for example, revealed uh, specific project plans or maps, that China has not ever committed itself to a specific budget, that China won't release the, a, a, a single coherent list of countries that are in or out. All of these indicate that at some very senior level in Beijing, the decision has been taken that it's better to leave this as a pretty vaguely defined initiative. You very adroitly anticipated my next question, and I think I, I actually asked that in the wrong way. One, one of the things I wanted to get at here is... Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, over the last five years, Obor has gotten a lot of publicity. However, uh, there remains widely varying estimates of its size, how it works, how it figures within Chinese grand strategy. And what I wanted to ask you was why did that why is that confusion still there? And was that one of the kind of motivating factors 
that drove you to look at this at a very tactical, granular level in the three case studies that you develop in the book? So the answer is it's vague because China has allowed it to be vague. It's vague because China hasn't uh, ever released a consistent list of projects or countries that are involved. And yes, that means that if Belt and Road can mean everything and nothing, and I think to a lot of observers, it sort of has meant everything and nothing, then when we talk about it, we're making a conceptual mistake because we're just projecting onto the Belt and Road whatever we already believe about China. And so you have to start by defining terms or setting criteria that will allow you to say a given project or a given bilateral relationship is in or out, or, or how can you how can you make any judgments? I mean, I think it's fair to say the United States is not part of the Belton Road. I think it's fair to say India is not part of the Belton Road. But back in the day, India did send and the United States did send low ranking, uh, uh, low ranking officials to attend the Belton Road Forum in Beijing. And India signed documents that could plausibly be interpreted as endorsing the Belton Road concept again back in the day. Um, and there are, in fact, some lists which have been published by the Chinese government that India is one of the 65 countries that has endorsed Belt and Road. But if you go to New Delhi, no one will tell you that that India supports the Belt and Road or wants any part of it. Um, so I think that we can ask questions institutionally about how the Belt and Road is administered. They can give us clues. But ultimately, we have to start by defining our terms where it's going to be very difficult for us to say anything clearly. Final point here. Since 2005, China has invested about $2 trillion overseas. Now, that's a lot of money. It's actually not that much money in comparison to uh, what other more developed countries have invested. In fact, China's uh, net holdings of overseas foreign direct investment are smaller as a percentage of China's GDP than the United States or Britain's or France's or Japan's. In fact, not by a little, but by a lot. So it's just the case that China has been very cut off uh, from the rest of the world uh, in terms of uh, foreign direct investment. And in the past 15 years, there's been a catch-up process where these investments have grown at a very rapid year-over-year pace. So a lot of this investment is pretty clearly not one belt, one road. For example, Chinese households buying second homes in Vancouver are probably not one belt, one road. There's no way you can really make that argument, right? Um, A Chinese hospitality company that wants to buy a hotel in central London, also probably not one belt, one road, even if the UK says nice things about the initiative. Uh, What about a Chinese robotics company, right, that tries to buy or invest in a, a, a German uh, machine tool company. Is that one belt, one road, even if Germany hasn't signed on? Well, many people would say yes, because it's in service of China's made in China 2025 industrial strategy, right? So it depends whether you're going to define the ins and outs of this by country, whether you're going to do it by sector, um, whether you're going to say that investments that were negotiated or launched before Xi Jinping and then subsequently 
brought under the Belt and Road umbrella are part of Belt and Road or not. It seems sort of unfair to take credit for deals that were struck before you came to power, but that is the nature of the Chinese system. Um, and so there's a number of reasons why this is important, but one reason is, and we can show this with concrete examples, when you, when you set the parameters of the definition differently, you arrive at very different results about what kinds of investments they make and how those investments perform. Here, let me give you a clear-cut example. There are some people, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to this argument, who say Belt and Road is understood by most people to be Chinese investment in heavy, uh, heavy industry and in uh, transport and logistics infrastructure. So airports, yes. Ports, yes. R- highways and bridges, yes and yes. Uh, coal-fired power plants and electrical infrastructure, yes. Um, agriculture, no. Right? Technology, no. And we're going to define it as investments in developed countries are not one belt, one road, because one belt, one road is connecting China to the developing world. So what you're going to find if you set those parameters are a lot of projects that are very, very large relative to the size of their economies and which are very, very high risk and unlikely to pay for themselves in the short term, like a gigantic megaport in Mombasa, Kenya, which maybe doesn't need one right now, right? Or a road through the Himalayas to connect Xinjiang to Pakistan in what is one of the most backwards and poorly governed uh, areas of the tribal provinces, probably not going to pay for itself through tolls. And so if you define the Belt and Road this way, you're going to come to the conclusion, ah, well, there's a lot of debt distress. Because clearly, you're defining in such a way that the projects you include are the kinds of projects that tend to be strategic in nature, uh, tend to be authorized for political reasons, not economic reasons, um, and are most likely to result in uh, failure to repay. So that's not to say these aren't important projects and worthy of consideration. It's just this is a very big and sprawling and conceptually diverse thing. And so the better way to do it is to look at a series of case studies and try to understand what are the common features and the differentiating features of these case studies and see whether proceeding that way, we can begin to build sort of a typology for how China may do different kinds of projects differently. And then also whether there's patterns for how China negotiates maybe in similar ways uh, across industries, across project sizes, across countries, um, and I think we find both things are the case. So we can dig into the details of some of those. We're going to dig into the case studies momentarily, but I want to continue delimiting our understanding of Obor for a few more minutes. You argue that the branding of Obor flows top down from President Xi, but its execution runs bottom up. What does that mean and what does that look like? So that's a great question. Um, let's start with the beginning. So Xi Jinping is essentially elected to accede to the top of the party pyramid um, at the 18th Party Congress in 2012. He assumes many of the trappings of the presidency in March of 2013. Later that year, pretty quickly after taking power, uh, he makes a bunch of moves that indicates that he's not going to be the same sort of leader cut from the same cloth as his predecessors, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin. Um, he does things like 
taking credit personally for decisions that previously would have been given collective credit to, to the Politburo senior leadership. He uh, ruthlessly takes out some of his uh, political adversaries and essentially launches a corruption campaign that uh, breaks apart the, the factional system that has kept up balance in Chinese elite politics for many years. And then he goes to Kazakhstan. Uh, he goes not to Almaty, which actually was a Silk Road city, but to Astana, which is the capital, the Soviet era capital. And he gives a speech where he says that the ancient Silk Road began in his adoptive province of Shanxi and that when he closes his eyes, he can hear the camel bells in the desert and he can visualize the glory of China at the height of its power and prosperity. And that by learning lessons from history, uh, China can deal more effectively and uh, justly with its partner countries and can begin to share the wisdom and experience of its long history with the world. So after this speech, there's a period of about 18 months where nothing happens. There's a lot of projects that have already been in process. The famous Hambantota port in Sri Lanka was one that is in the process of being constructed in 2013-14. But there's not any more communication from the senior leadership about what the hell this is. And then in 2015, you have the release of this document from the state council called Vision and Actions for Jointly Building the One Belt, One Road. And this is signed off on by several of the leading power bases in Beijing, the Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Commerce and Trade, many ministries, and it is essentially impenetrable. It's released in Chinese and in several other languages, but it is not a planning document of the sort that any Western policy wonk would recognize. It's full of highfalutin language about the virtues of cooperation and trust and harmony, but there's no list of projects. There's no budget. It simply says China will seek cooperation with countries along the Belt and Road, not distinguished geographically. And it doesn't even say that it will happen through infrastructure mega projects. It says this is about exchanges of all kinds, including exchanges of data, exchanges of culture and of people. It's the most vague possible thing. But what it does indicate, uh, particularly to lower ranking cadres all down the chain who read state media and start seeing this slogan, Idai Ilu, appearing day after day in the, on the front page, is that this is a, a priority for the state council, uh, which is the, the high muckety-mucks of the party, and that it should be expected of them that they should take actions to further this goal, and that if they do so ineffectively, or if they're seen as insufficiently loyal to it, their heads could roll. And so after 2015, you start seeing things like the Kitchenware Manufacturers Association getting together, and you start seeing uh, leaders of these organizations standing up at the conference and saying, listen, guys, we need to fully study and comprehensively grasp the ideas in this document and seek to deploy them through our own actions even though we're kitchenware manufacturers, we have a part to play in this too. And the central government doesn't discourage this. In fact, it actually it actively encourages 
uh, Belton Road, football leagues, Belton Road, art exhibits, Belton Road, opera performances. Um, there's all kinds of funny examples, Belton Road cosmetics, Belton Road real estate. At one point, um, there's a, a ceremony at which several uh, medium to high ranking communist party officials are present where a One Belt, One Road outstanding brand contribution trophy, an enormous golden trophy, is awarded to a property developer from Zhejiang province for building properties in other countries that I suppose further mutual cooperation between China and other places. So this is, this is an active communication that comes from the top down that whatever it is you happen to do, whatever your industry is, you can take part in it. And what that really means is you talk about how brilliant Xi Jinping's concept is and you do what you can to uh, show that you're loyal to that. And I'll stop there if you have follow-up questions, but I think starting in 2015, it becomes clearly understood from the bottom up that this is a concept that you can take with, you can take and run with. And in fact, it's not until later until around 2017, 18, that there's a realization that uh, a lot of private entities are basically using the brand for their own purposes. And they're using it as political cover to spirit money out of the country to invest in projects that, you know, maybe they wanted to do anyway, and maybe don't have much uh, alignment with Xi Jinping's interests. They're just capital outflows, like, a, you know, buying a hotel or, or, real estate for your family. And so there starts to be an emphasis in 2017-18 uh, to put tighter restrictions on the loans that are provided by the state policy banks and uh, to start to provide more oversight. And it's at this point that the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, which is the very powerful body uh, in Beijing that oversees industrial policy, uh, presumably starts to take a greater role in approving projects before they're actually funded. And you see this leading small group on Belt and Road Affairs. Essentially, it's an executive committee or a board of directors for the Belt and Road, which is chaired by uh, Xi Jinping and staffed by some senior Politburo officials, uh, which presumably starts taking decisions about which countries and sectors should be prioritized. But it ne never at any point is there a communication uh, publicly down to the grassroots level that we're going to define this more tightly and you shouldn't be trying to associate yourself with it. And that is, I think, why we see examples of individual property developers, for example, or individual private companies in China taking on risky, uh, risky projects overseas, possibly even thinking that they're going to lose money on the, on the deal, but hoping that it will pay off in the end because they're proving their loyalty to the center. How much is Obor shaped by the political ambition of Xi Jinping on one hand, as compared with the behavior of Washington on the other? And in that latter category, there is a subcurrent in this book um, about um, the ways in which Obor is reactive to decisions and actions that Washington takes. For example, in 2012-2013, uh, the U.S. pivot to Asia, which actually overlaps kind of nicely with Xi's announcement about Obor, and later the 2017 speech at Davos, which comes after the election of Donald Trump, which is 
recognized by most everyone in the world as this inflection point in terms of the United States and its relation to the international system? So that's a good question. Um, it's really two questions, if I hear it right. The first is, to what extent is it connected to Xi Jinping's uh, cult of personality and personal control in China? Now, we can talk a bit, if you want to, and maybe that's the way to go next, about the propaganda, uh, which I think particularly Chinese propaganda are a telling window into what this initiative is um, and what the actual historical claims are that underlie it about the nature of the ancient Silk Road that China is trying to recreate. Um, if you look at the most authoritative sources of propaganda on this, which I, I believe are this series of documentaries that was produced by Chinese Central Television in 2017, 2016-17, um, that have all sorts of foreign leaders involved, Henry Kissinger, Vladimir Putin, people who couldn't have been booked unless this project had backing from the highest level. The, the historical claims that are being shown here are essentially China reached the apex of its imperial glory under the emperor Han Udi in the, in the first century, uh, second and first centuries BC, um, because it punched open a way through Central, A to Central Asia and through Central Asia to Europe uh, and showed the foreigners just how much China had to offer in terms of its wealth and its products and its technology, and that this created a harmonious regional and global system whereby other countries were just so desperate to get access to the Chinese market that they sent <clears throat> tributary uh, envoys uh, to go and ensure that relations would be smooth, and that this was a functional and ultimately really effective uh, model of world order until there was this period where the rise of the West happened. And now Xi Jinping has emerged as sort of a second coming of Hanu Di and is prepared to restore that greatness. So he is both a virtuous traditionalist for studying the lessons of Chinese history, and he's also a visionary leader as Hanu Di has been recreated as being. Um, that is clearly a subcurrent of the propaganda within China. And because everyone in China knows this, because, for example, in uh, at the 19th Party Congress, when Xi Jinping was, quote unquote, reelected in 2017, they wrote One Belt, One Road alongside Xi Jinping thought into the National Party Constitution. Because these two things are so associated, to praise One Belt, One Road is to praise Xi Jinping and vice versa. And so when he talks about how he's going to promote it more actively, uh, that is code for he's, he, he's doubling down on demanding fealty uh, to the personality cult. Uh, but I think insofar as One Belt, One Road is a name we give to this new form of diplomatic relationship, sort semi-tributary diplomatic relationship that China's trying to uh, reestablish with the countries that it does business with or invests in. Yes, I think it is very responsive to the United States. Specifically, the United States has abdicated its role as the, the, the leader in these uh, international financial institutions. And that has offered China an opportunity to step up and put itself forward as a superior model 
uh, for developing countries to follow in their economic development, but also as a more reliable patron. Uh, so we can talk about case study examples, but I think in the case of Russia, the Ukraine crisis was ultimately what forced Vladimir Putin to embrace One Belt, One Road, in spite of a lot of fear and resistance from his security establishment. In Iran, it was ultimately Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal that pushed Iran into the arms of China and led it to take out, if not loans, uh, pledges to do a bunch of cooperative projects uh, once the sanctions are finally lifted. If you look at Malaysia, it was the American failure to uh, demonstrate its credibility to its Southeast Asian partners that it would demonstrate security and preserve freedom of navigation in the South China Sea that led the Malaysians to conclude that they had no choice but to um, tighten their, their relations with China. And even in countries like Greece, in the heart of Europe, longtime NATO allies, it's been the failure of the U.S., but also its partners in, in Brussels and in Berlin to make sure that these smaller and peripheral European countries' voices are heard that have led many policymakers in these countries to conclude, well, maybe partnering with China is not such a bad idea. They can give us some investment, they can give us some technical advice, and they can be a, a foreign backer that we can then use to bargain more effectively with the United States. So yes, I think there's been a failure of American leadership to recognize that One Belt, One Road is not just about China building projects overseas. It's, it's an offer of an alternative form of hegemonic uh, role that China is trying to create for itself. And I think this is a very serious question that has to be investigated, not only from the Chinese perspective, but also from the perspective of those countries that choose to join. Well, let's jump into the case studies. The three major case studies you present in this book are Sri Lanka, Tanzania, and Greece. And to my delight, you buck the Academy's partiality to quantification and large N political science studies. So why do you choose these three cases? So Tanzania and Greece were afterthoughts. Ultimately, Sri Lanka is the most important case because the United States under the Trump administration has identified this port of Hambantota in the south of Sri Lanka as the signature example of a Belt and Road project gone wrong. So a little bit of background. Sri Lanka in 2007 began discussions about building a port uh, in the southern part of the country, it's part of the country that had been devastated both by civil war and by the terrible, earth, uh, the terrible uh, earthquake and tsunami in 2000, 2004, I believe. And the, the president, Rajapaksa, who is no fan of India or the United States, decided that he would increase Sri Lanka's strategic autonomy by turning it into a maritime power and a trading hub in the Indian Ocean region by turning his home, hometown into this gigantic port and special economic zone. Now, pretty much no international investors thought this was a good idea, but the Chinese did. Uh, there were a series of negotiations, there were starts and stops, but ultimately they, start, they set out in stages to build a port and then a port city uh, of light industry and logistics surrounding the port. And the idea is that this is going to turbocharge the Sri Lankan economy. This doesn't work. The project doesn't pay for itself. There's virtually no traffic at the port at all. And so in 2017, the Sri Lankans sitting on $1.4 in debt 
decide to renegotiate. They swap the debt for the equity and the Chinese essentially forgive the loan in return for taking over the infrastructure itself on a 99-year lease. Now, 99 years, that obviously has resonances. They're not good resonances to the Chinese people and to anyone who's studied China. It's a reminder of the terms on which the British got Hong Kong. And because, as we know, the Chinese have strategic interests in the Indian Ocean and in the Middle East, it's potentially concerning, particularly when just months after the handover, you have a senior scholar writing in a pretty important Chinese uh, publication, the Global Times, that maybe the uh, Chinese Navy would consider using Hamatota as a base. So the U.S. government under Mike Pence, uh, when Pence announces in 2018 at the Hudson Institute that uh, essentially it's a landmark shift in U.S. policy towards China, it's declaring uh, a new era of great power competition. Um, Pence says, just ask Sri Lanka if you want an example of Chinese debt diplomacy gone wrong. And superficially, this seems like a pretty clear-cut case. But I think it's important because if you actually start looking at the domestic politics of how the Sri Lankans got to this deal and how they understand the deal after the handover, you realize that it didn't it wasn't actually the case that the Chinese lured them into borrowing a bunch of money that they couldn't pay back, that the Chinese somehow tricked them into thinking that Hamantota would be a commercial success and the Sri Lankans were oh so surprised when it didn't work out. And it certainly isn't the case that the Sri Lankans have turned on China or turned on the Belt and Road post handover. In fact, if you actually go to Colombo and start speaking with elites from any of the major political parties, including Rajapaksa's enemies, former enemies, um, you will, I think, find widespread consensus that China is both a model for the path of development that Sri Lanka wants to follow, and it's a great partner. They've invested in all sorts of projects all over the country, in the power grid, in the the highway network, in Colombo itself, um, and that this has been both extraordinarily good in, in a direct way for Sri Lanka, and it's been very strategically effective because it's given the... the the Sri Lankan government more leverage when it negotiates with other countries in the region. And it has solicited investment from the Singaporeans, from the Indians, um, from multilateral development banks. And so the Sri Lankans call this strategic promiscuity. If you play footsie with everyone, then maybe you can get everyone jealous and you can become the most desirable person at the party. So the fact that the United States, I think, has fundamentally misconstrued what this case study means is an indication, and that the U.S. government continues to point to it as the prime example of what the debt trap is at its worst, uh, persuaded me that, well, we need to look at other projects along the Belt and Road that resemble uh, the Hamantota project in its in its size and in its layout and see, well, are other countries that are offered similar deals, um, are they arriving at the same conclusion? And what's interesting about the Tanzania and the Greek ports, the Tanzanian port is called Bagamoyo, and the Greek port is Piraeus. Um, the Bagamoyo never got built. 
There was a change in power. There were various domestic political uh, issues, and the Tanzanians never ended up building the project. But they pretended that they were going to build it for a long time. And they still, from time to time, when they meet with the Chinese, pretend, oh, yeah, it's going to happen. We're just reviewing this or that. But there's no plan at all to, to go ahead and build it. And then in Greece, uh, there was a port of Piraeus already. So it's not a perfect analogy, but in many ways, it's similar. We're talking about a port, an industrial zone around the port, a processing zone. Piraeus has long been the most important port in Greece, but it was in dire financial straits, particularly after the global financial crisis. And the Chinese came in, they did a series of investments. They took out a lease on a pier, and they ended up expanding their lease into equity control over the port. And it has turned it into a resounding commercial success operated by China. Costs have come down. Competitiveness has soared. Throughput has risen year after year. And Piraeus has become the one of the fastest growing and most important ports in Europe. And so the question is, look at these three cases. They resemble each other in so many ways. One was a failure. One was never built. One became a commercial success. And yet China triumphed politically in all three countries by, regardless of whether the project succeeded or failed, building the political links that it needed to local actors in all of the main interest groups and political parties and civil society groups in these countries. And so the result of these countries' engagement with the Belt and Road had nothing really to do in the end with the success or failure of the infrastructure. It had to do mainly with the political relationship that they built in the process. And that's the point. As you were investigating these case studies, what did you find in terms of the ways the local actors responded to uh, questions about China versus questions about the U.S.? So did they view the two as, in a normative sense, as different as the United States, as more open and transparent than the Chinese? Um, Curious to hear your thoughts on how the interviewees you spoke with responded to those types of questions. Thanks, John. So I, I can answer this only in generalities. I'd encourage everyone to buy the book, read the book, come to your own conclusions from the quotes um, that are presented. I did my best in each of these case studies to interview people from all possible stakeholder groups, including minority political parties, uh, labor groups, business groups, anti-China groups, pro-China groups, um, and to try to make sure that I heard everyone out and at least in the footnotes, let everyone share their, their view. So I can't generalize about how people felt about China in the United States. Some were very pro-China, some were very pro-America. Some didn't have a strong feeling about geopolitics at all. Uh, there were, however, patterns there is a general understanding that the Chinese are businessmen, that the Chinese act fast, that they negotiate hard, that they understand what their interests are, that they break the rules. Um, someone in Greece told me the Chinese play football with their hands, right? And this has pros and cons. It's definitely a con if you're a union leader and your workers are, I think we can say, pretty fairly compensated at a time when the country is sliding into depression. And the Chinese come and they lay off some of your workers 
and they renegotiate everyone else's contracts and they make them work long shifts with no overtime. Um, that aspect of playing football with your hands and not playing by the rules or by local customs is not a good thing. But I think in general, if you're a, if you're a senior official and you're, or you're a politician and you're in charge of development, it is just intrinsically more desirable if you're going to get a foreign investor or a foreign loan to get the money today rather than five years from now. And if you're going to break ground on a project to begin doing the hiring of the local people to get community buy-in today rather than five years from now after everything has been studied to death and enormous uh, environmental reports and community impact assessments have been researched and debated. So there's a sense that the Chinese have a different model, that they do things the way they do it inside China, which is you want to build a, you want to build a bridge or a road, you just move the people, move what you have to move, and you start work tomorrow morning. And I think for that reason, whether or not it's true, the fact that that's the understanding, means that China just has a built-in advantage uh, when it's competing with the U.S. or Japan or multilateral lenders for a given project. Because if I'm a politician in a recipient country and I want to generate the jobs and the GDP boost before my next election, I'm going to take the offer from the contractor that's going to start building right away. And I think for very important and valid reasons, the U.S. and other Western countries and the multilateral development banks don't like funding projects that haven't been properly studied. Right. They want to make sure that environmental and community impact is assessed before they start building. But that means that even if the U.S. were somehow to put a huge amount of money behind a development bank, and the Trump administration has begun to try to do this, even if we say we're going to fund building you know, heavy infrastructure and taking on very risky loans in the developing world, we're still not going to be competing with what the Chinese are actually offering, which is namely we're going to give you something that you can deliver fast to your people. And that's probably going to help you stay in power, isn't it? And that's why in a lot of countries where China does these mega projects, opposition parties are skeptical or fiercely opposed. They call it corrupt. They question China's motives. But after there's an election and those same opposition parties come to power themselves, they decide, well, actually this works in my favor because if this construction happens on my watch, uh, I'll get the credit. And so this makes it actually a really effective lubricant for China's diplomatic relationships. And it's not something that the United States can really compete with in a one-to-one way. Let's move from diagnosis into prognosis. And for our listeners, the, the vast majority of this book is a diagnosis of one belt, one road. But in the last chapter, Ike, you get to the prognosis, how Washington can and should respond. What are some of the options you consider and what do you think is the best path forward? So one of the great privileges of my academic and professional life is that my first job out of college was as a research assistant to Graham Allison of Thucydides Trap fame. And Graham has been around a long time. He served in government under Democrats and Republicans. And he has a saying, he likes to quote Nietzsche. He says, the most common form of human stupidity is forgetting what it is that one is trying to do. 
And in foreign policy, governments all the time set about trying to fix problems before they actually understand what national interests are at stake. I think it's important to recognize that none of the activities that China has been undertaking under One Belt, One Road actually threaten the vital national interests, the lives and the livelihoods of the American people. Um, And I don't think they really threaten the lives or the livelihoods of people and American allies either. Uh, So maybe that puts me on the dovish side. Maybe that's contrarian, but I, I don't think that the military dimension of this is really a big part of the story. And I think that's a good thing. It means we we shouldn't overreact to this. This is a long-term trend. It is fundamentally an innovation of ideas that China has offered about what they can offer other countries. And it is a it is an attempt to rebrand uh, the Chinese the Chinese Empire in a way that can compete more effectively with the United States. I think for that reason, we need to be thinking about this as a long-term challenge that we need to outcompete, uh, rather than either an existential threat that we need to confront at all costs, everywhere and always, or um, an infrastructure campaign that is losing money and therefore going to fizzle out. I think this has legs. It has legs within China. It has legs overseas. Clearly, recipient countries, including NATO allies like Portugal and Italy and Spain, are signing up for it. Countries in the Caribbean, countries in Latin America are signing up for it. Um, But I think we can break Belt and Road projects into buckets and decide which ones pose more threat to us than others. Clearly, the technological sphere uh, can potentially really impact our national security. I think we should justifiably be pressuring our allies that they should not accept Huawei into their critical infrastructure. I think it's possible we can draw a line and say, just as we didn't want the Soviets doing things in Cuba, we don't want uh, Belt and Road projects that could be pulling uh, Northern Hemisphere, uh, sorry, Western Hemisphere countries into China's orbit. Um, But I don't think that it makes sense for us to compete everywhere and try to match you know, a road for a road in Kenya that's not necessarily serving any particularly high-ranking national interest. Um, in terms of our options, I think the, uh, the policy of the Trump administration has been uh, to hedge, uh, assuming that possibly it can flame out of its own accord, uh, while trying to push back selectively. That's the Goldilocks option. Uh, there's a more confrontational approach where we can say we're in a existential superpower rivalry with China, and we need to prevent them at all costs from turning this Belt and Road scheme into a proper geopolitical block. And so we need to actively disrupt every single one of these relationships. Um, And that could be effective, but it needs to be well-resourced. And then a third strategy would be the softest touch. and would simply say, you know, China building infrastructure in other countries is not really a problem for us. In fact, insofar as it gets growth going in these places, it could even be a good thing. And if China wants to think of itself as an empire and Xi Jinping as an emperor, that's none of our business. We're not trying to overthrow them or meddle with their system. And so in this third option, maybe the thing you do 
is you partner with the Belt and Road where you can, where it's possible to use it as, a, as an instrument to achieve goals that you want, climate goals, uh, public health goals, like distributing a COVID vaccine. Um, it's, it's, it's possible to find areas of common ground, um, but it would require joining it and trying to co-opt it from within so that China can't turn it into a proper geopolitical bloc that threatens um, America and our allies. In the book, I come down on the third side. I think that this is what the Russians have chosen. They don't want to spend the money to compete with China dollar for dollar. So they basically made a deal with Xi Jinping, an implicit deal, that they'll praise the Belt and Road and invite him to things and let him give him face as a, as a visionary leader. Uh, but they'll block Chinese investment in critical infrastructure in Russia. And I think that is a potential model that the U.S. could follow um, that could potentially lead to other kinds of cooperation with China on issues that we have to work together, uh, climate being a good example and COVID eradication being another. Uh, but I don't think it's likely at, at this point uh, since just the, the ethos in Washington has moved in such a hawkish direction. Um, and you know what? It is possible uh, that I'm wrong. And if China is a revisionist power and it's committed to supplanting the United States at all costs, that we need a whole of government, whole of society, whole of economy strategy to competing with China globally. And so maybe we're heading into Cold War II, whether we like it or not. Um, but if that's the case, this, this strategy that we're going to have to design to deal with it, it's going to start with diagnosis. And we're going to have to work from that before we get to a prescription. Let me ask one final question. You just described yourself there as generally dumbish, yet at at least one point in the in the book, possibly a few others, you do describe Obor as pernicious. Is your primary fear, does it have to do with kind of the general tectonics of power here, of China expanding its reach and its kind of network of power across, across the globe vis-a-vis the United States? So is it a realist argument for how the United States needs to respond to this challenge? Or is there something about the uh, internal dynamics of Chinese power as we see it play out in the case studies you looked at this book that should give us cause for concern? Because you do paint a picture of a tributary system However, a tributary system where the tributes willingly accede to the system. They see it in their own benefit. So I don't know if I can give you such a satisfying answer to this because I try to hold back from showing my hand for most of the book because I do think that most of my contribution is empirical. It's trying to help people understand what is actually happening and how we can relate the very fine-grained details of what we see on the ground uh, to what we understand is happening conceptually and at the highest levels in Beijing. Um, And so I I hope that the book can really be the the basis for discussion in Washington about how our national interests are actually impacted by the Belt and Road and how we, issue by issue, point by point, can design a strategy uh, around that. I think the timeline on which we have to produce a book means that a lot of new issues have emerged while the book was in process. Uh, Huawei being one, I talk about it a little bit, but it's emerged as a key feature of U.S. foreign policy in the last year of Trump. 
and COVID-19 being another. I think it's quite plausible that in 2021, as a lot of these big infrastructure projects uh, run into uh, logistical roadblocks on the ground, you know, as it's entirely possible that there's a, a wave of sovereign defaults or near defaults in the developing world, that China concludes that they should just cut their losses essentially on this uh, infrastructure development side of the Belt and Road and uh, accept that some of these policy banks are going to have to write off this debt, but take a relatively accommodating uh, position on the debt negotiations and say, look, we're actually here to help. We're the opposite of a debt trap uh, lender. Uh, we're going to give even more loans at concessional rates. And guess what? We'll give you more loans uh, to distribute a COVID vaccine. Um, I think we need to recognize that some of the more sinister tactics uh, can be easily changed and supplanted for others. Um, the question of whether China is, or whether China's uh, under Xi Jinping's uh, objectives of reviving this imperial system are sinister. Um, that depends what position you're coming from. I mean, if I, I don't think many people in Washington, serious people, particularly in the Biden team, think that seeking regime change in China is a good idea or is plausibly going to work. So if if we accept that you know Chinese domestic politics is going in the direction that it is, uh, we have to work with the hand that we've been dealt. And that means recognizing that a lot of this process of recipient countries realigning towards China is not a secret. It's been happening in plain sight and recognizing that challenge for what it is and then trying to build a whole of government development strategy um, that can offer these countries a more attractive deal. Ike, before I let you go, one last question. What can we expect from you next? (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'll ever safely be allowed back into China again. But I think the next step is to look at climate change. Uh, Belt and Road, among other things, has built hundreds of coal-fired power plants all over the world. And it's a real question whether uh, there is any plausible solution to the climate challenge that isn't anchored by a U.S.-China deal. So I think that the next big question is, how do the U.S. and China get to a climate deal? And what exactly does the future of the rivalry look like if they can't? Great. Thank you, Ike. And thank you, everyone, for listening to New Books and National Security. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure.